Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Dr. Norm, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to talk about our topic, which is, you know, histamine or excess histamine in the system. So how did you get into treating histamine in the system? Hmm. Yes, uh, Dr. Emery, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I've been focused on um, functional GI issues for pretty much the last 18 years or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I work with a lot of people that have GERD and IBS and SIBO and other forms of dysbiosis. Uh, and there's many more forms of that now. Now we have SIBO, SIFO, LIBO, EPO. Um, so there's a lot going on in the gut. And that's that's how I get into it. But a lot of the people that I work with, you know, some were worried they had histamine issues. And also there is this connection between histamine intolerance and gut dysbiosis. So um, in a nutshell, I just thought it was really um, time to take a deeper look. A lot of what I do is driven by people I work with, you know, what their needs are. Sure. And can you define what SIBO is and gut dysbiosis? I know we like use lingos, but just so that, you know, folks out there know. Sure. sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, SIBO, that's the most, uh, people will be most familiar with that one, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. You know, we have 10 trillion bacteria in our large intestine, um, but we we should have not too many bacteria in our small intestine, especially near the early part of it, where we have villi and microvilli and a lot of sensitive digestive machinery. So when you get a lot of uh, bacteria up in there, it creates all of these different problems and a lot of symptoms. So that's SIBO. And that was uh, very popular for a long time because it's a breath test for it. And so people were getting tested and finding out they had it and what will I do? Uh, and then along comes a couple of uh, uh, groups that did some smart pill technology and f- using pH studies. And, and, you know, when you see lower pH in the intestines, you know there's bacterial activity there producing these short-chain fatty acids. And they found that the biggest change in, in drop in pH with people that had IBS was in the early part of the large bowel. And so really, they didn't term it this, but I coined this term years ago as a potential for something called LIBO, large intestinal bacterial mm-hmm. overgrowth. Even though you have a lot, you could have even more. And now there's a couple of studies that actually support that as a real potential problem. And uh, then, of course, uh, uh, Satish Rao's work, uh, he's been getting into and looking at CFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And then recently yeah. in, a, in a SIBO consensus document, they broke out intestinal methanogen overgrowth emo into its own thing. So there's, there's a lot to chew on there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then can you also define dysbiosis of the gut as well? Right. Well, all of those things I just mentioned are forms of dysbiosis because dysbiosis really refers to an imbalance in these gut micro uh, populations. And so it can be where they are, what they are, how many there are. So any form of, of uneven growth or dysbiotic growth or growth that doesn't, it's not comparable to kind of the mean of people that get these gut biotests. Um, so it really encompasses all of those things. 
you know, just as like a side, uh, side note, what's really interesting to me is initially when I learned about the gut parasites, 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 you got to check for parasites, which, you know, absolutely you need to check for parasites. But what I found when I run stool tests, GI map tests, parasitic DNA tests, to figure out if what I'm experiencing or dealing with in a patient could be parasitic activity, I found over and over again that primarily what most people are dealing with are the things that you just mentioned. All of the things that you just mentioned, fungal overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth, you know, um, basically opportunistic bacteria in the gut, dysbiosis, not enough of the good bacteria over and over and over again. Have you seen the same thing on stool testing or... Have you seen something different? You, you do see that. Um, but um, you have to read between the lines. I mean, a lot of parasites are kind of indigenous and mm-hmm. they do find them in the gut. And uh, unless you see them along with symptoms, uh, a lot of people won't necessarily treat those. But there are exceptions. Um, mm-hmm. I worked with a woman. She was living in Europe, but she had lived in Vietnam for quite a few years, some years ago. And uh, her symptoms were just such that I really wanted to get not only a full stool test, but the parasite test panel Mm -hmm. as well. And she actually had had Giardia probably from seven years before. Um, And she had had, you know, chronic uh, symptoms and diarrhea. And so in her case, Giardia is something I think needs to be treated. And so, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, um, you know, and occasionally you'll see people that have uh, chronic diarrhea that'll have um, a C. diff that hasn't, hadn't been uncovered. You know, and then some of the viruses, hepatitis C can impact the liver and create a real, um, you know, not only is it dangerous long-term liver cancer and so forth, but it can really affect digestion as well. So I agree. I I do think sometimes you'll find it's good to look because sometimes you'll find the exception. Mm -hmm. It's just not as common as I think I originally thought. You know, I run the test pretty, like pretty much on every patient just to double check because it Mm -hmm. comes in the same GI you know, the GI map test, but I don't find it much, even when I'm challenging for it, even when I'm uncovering biofilm. So kind of, kind of an interesting side note. So we're talking all about histamine today, (laughs) right? So so, yeah, we'll go back to that. So histamine, what is um, histamine intolerance? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, what is histamine too, right? Sure. um, What is histamine? Great. It was discovered in 1910. It was shown to be the cause of anaphylactic shock in 1932. So we've known about this thing for quite a while. Um, It's a biologically active amine. So it's a nitrogen-containing compound. And there's many other amines too. And some of those can be problematic as well. Tyrosine and others. So it's not just histamine, but that's that's the big one, especially for this this, uh, talk we're having today. Um, Where does it come from? Well, it's derived from histidine, the common amino acid. So pretty much all proteins will have this histidine amino acid in it. And there's an enzyme called histidine decarboxylase that takes histidine and converts it into histamine. And so that enzyme is present in a whole variety of cells, mast cells, basophils, um, neurons in the brain, um, cells that line the gut. So got all these cells that can produce it. Um, And, but it does regulate a lot of key processes, good processes, healthy. I mean, histamine is a good thing. We, we don't want to lose track of that in the right amount. Um, it's, it, it does mediate inflammation, which is critical if you have an infection, right? Something we were just talking about. 
Um, it's also a vasodilator, so it will make the blood vessels more permeable. So antibodies and immune cells and cytokines can get out to the site of infection. So that's important. Um, it regulates stomach acid, right? You hear about these H2 blockers. What are they doing? They're sticking to the histamine 2 receptor on parietal cells and blocking the histamine from binding and, and releasing stomach acid. So there's another important, um, I'm not for the H2 blockers, I'm for the acid. So there's another positive role for histamine. Um, essentially, it's just critical to our health. Other gut functions, nerve action, you know, brain health. So in the right amount, it's really a critical um, modulator. And you said something really important. You said it's very important in nerve action, which I think is really important. Can you just hmm. expound on that just a little bit? Because I think that that's a really important point to drive home. Yeah, sure, I will. But my knowledge is going to be a little bit limited. But you do see, if you look at diagrams of nerve synapses, mm -hmm. you'll see histamine right there. So it, it does have a role in exactly how that works. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure, but... Um, More of the vagal, vagal, of the vagus nerve response, the transit time through is, is more what I was thinking, but that's, that's all right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, there are a tremendous number of uh, histamine receptors in the gut and all hmm. over the body. Um, and there's many different kinds. We've talked about H2, but there's H1, 3, and 4. So... Um, that just shows you how widespread the action of histamine is in the body. Great. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's often overlooked. So what yeah. type of uh, conditions would people see that have a histamine intolerance? Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, there's, we talked about kind of, um, immune actions, but, but allergies is, is another one, right? Anaphylactic being the worst type. We talked about um, a little bit about, you know, some, we didn't really talk in general about histamine intolerance, but some of those are digestive sy symptoms that mimic um, IBS. It makes it a little confusing, but, but most, a lot of the systemic symptoms of histamine intolerance um, have to do with, you know, basically hives and allergic reactions and, and all these things, blood pressure and, and heart rate. Uh, but there are some other conditions. Um, migraines are very um, strongly linked to histamine uh, intolerance. In fact, there were some recent studies showing that people with migraines in these populations had less DAO, diamine oxidase, one of the enzymes that, that gets rid of histamine. And that um, Treating with DAO, you can take it as a supplement, actually improve the migraines. So there's that um, mast cell activation syndrome um, is a big one, can be pretty pretty serious, pretty strong symptoms where they, they have these large populations, detectable levels, increased number of these mast cells near the surface of the skin. Um, and then also POTS, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Uh, you may have heard of that, about that, and it's actually, you know, there is a connection between that and and um, MCAS. So that's where somebody stands up in their hot races and, you know, beats 30 minutes per minute, 30 beats per minute more, faster, and sometimes they have flushing and, and other symptoms um, and may, in fact, also have um, MCAS. So that's, yeah, that's some of them. Can we do, I thought maybe we could go back and talk sure. a little bit more about those um, 
those symptoms, right? Let's do it. Um, and and maybe uh, kind of the the cause. Of, you know, the why do we get high high histamine too? Yeah. Um, just some of the reading I've been doing. Um, you know, and by the way, these symptoms are more common in in middle age and older people. So if somebody uh, called me and said they were 18 and, and had histamine intolerant, intolerance, I might think mm, probably something else, but um, wouldn't be impossible. So I was talk, trying to talk about these systemic symptoms, right? Allergic reactions, but even things like itching and uh, flushing, congestion, sneezing, a lot of the things people associate with these seasonal allergies, uh, but even things like insomnia, um, menstrual pain. There's a lot of these different connections. So that's systemic. But then the GI symptoms, I just wanted to go in. I had mentioned they were like the IBS symptoms. And they're really almost exactly alike, which surprises me a little bit, makes me wonder. Gas and bloating and cramps, nausea, uh, even vomiting and altered bowel habits. Wow, that sounds a lot like SIBO and a lot like IBS. Um, so it might be interesting if you're working with somebody, try to tease those apart a little bit, you know, get hydrogen, uh, lactulose breath test, maybe do some skin pricks, some urine analysis. You know, if you really, somebody really thought they had, um, histamine, but maybe it was SIBO instead, or just put them on a, uh, low fermentable carb diet, which is essentially what the fast track diet is that I created and see if that does it right there. Um, because when you think about where the histamine is coming from, I think SIBO ends up on the on the front center stage. Um, so we we talked about histidine decarboxylase, right, in mammalian cells and in bacterial cells. They have a very similar enzymes, so they can produce all this histamine. That's where it's coming from into our body. Um, but what's getting rid of it, right? And that's where I had mentioned diamine oxidase (DAO). Right, that's an enzyme that's mostly uh, it's in the gut, it's in the serum, it's in uh, between the cells, all over the body, but it's not inside the cells. And for that, there's an enz another enzyme called histamine and methyltransferase, and that breaks down histamine, but inside the cells, inside neurons, in the brain. So we've got these two enzymes that break it down. One that's creating it, and then we're also getting it from the diet, right? People talk about high histamine in, in, uh, from dietary sources, but also the histamine produced from bacteria. They have this very similar enzyme, and it's well-known, especially gram-negative bacteria. They can produce a lot of histamine right in the gut. And in fact, that's where the histamine's coming from on unfresh fish and meat. They say, well, those are high histamine. Why? They have bacteria growing on the surface. So I just, yeah, I just wanted to kind of double back and talk a little bit about the symptoms and where it's coming from and why some people have high histamine levels. Great. So you have a patient that comes in, they have all of these symptoms that sound like IBS. Um, and I'm just going to define that really quick because just in case folks out there don't know, but, you know, it could be constipation, it could be diarrhea, it could be gas, bloating, vomiting, any of those symptoms. Um or slow transit time through the gut, um, gut pain, any of those things can be IBS. So mm. there's probably an excess of histamine, but you're suspicious of SIBO. So you run a test, right? Just to double check, which would be a breath test because, you know, the 
I think when people think about running a test for their gut, they always think of a stool test, but mm-hmm. the, you know, the intestine is divided up into two different ways. So with this particular, mm-hmm. the small intestine and up, we really need a breath test to see what's going on, to see what those bacteria are fermenting, right? So yeah. at, so, so you see this patient, they come in and you, they have positive SIBO tests, you know, you know, name your poison on which SIBO. Um, what, so is your first step to change the diet, treat the SIBO, et cetera? Like how, where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it does depend. If somebody is just coming in with, um, you, you know, um, say diarrhea and cramps and bloating and belching or reflux and some combination of IBS and, and acid reflux symptoms, I may not even, if they don't, if they have a breath test already, that's great. I'd love to see it. If they don't, I might not even ask them to get one initially um, because you could just base some early dietary intervention um, on those symptoms. So do you have to go and spend 300 bucks to get a breath test? Maybe not. Maybe you could just try some, you know, you really want to knock down those fermentable carbs. Um, The approach that I take is is based on the fast track diet that I developed. And there's three parts to that. One is limiting, quantitatively limiting fermentable carbohydrates that are hard to digest, but fermentable by bacteria. So fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols, hard to digest. A lot of those are going to persist in the gut and potentially feed blooms of these gas producing bacteria. So that is one element of the fast track diet. Another one is really looking at potential underlying or contributing causes of SIBO and dysbiosis. And there's 25 or 30 or more of these, but there's a lot of ways you can work with people to very quickly eliminate most of those. Um, you know, do they have low stomach acid or not? You don't need to go and get a test for that. This You can pretty much eliminate just by tests they've had, symptoms by talking to them. So want to rule a lot of those out. That's the underlying cause. And then the third part is behaviors and practices. A lot of people don't think about that much, but you know, how are you selecting the foods? How are you preparing them? When you're eating, uh, are you fasting? Are you, you know, um, are you refrigerating starches where they might build up more fibrous types of resistant starch? Um, how are you consuming your meals? Are you eating slowly and chewing well? So there's kind of a three part um, approach to that, which is something I um, I like to try first. When I work with people, I do use kind of a more aggressive version of that, so we can quickly see if that's going to do something. And then after, sure, if we need to, more tests, stool tests, breath tests. If methane might be involved, if somebody has, you know, idiopathic constipation, I really think methane is important to look for. So mm-hmm. in that case, absolutely the breath test, because you want to know, are you dealing with an e- a methane issue or are you dealing with something else? Medications, hydration, a million other things that can cause constipation. Mm-hmm. So I'll get a little bit off histamine there, but yeah, it's it's a good discussion, you know, how to how to triage, how to work with people that have these these issues. You know, it's been interesting. I don't and just on the SIBO front, um it's been kind of mixed, right? Some folks say not to change the diet in a SIBO case because the bacteria will go and hide and to treat it first with antimicrobials of some sort. 
and then potentially, you know, address dietary issues. Where are you? I think that that's just a preference, but where are you on that spectrum? You're more diet change first. Yes. Well, you know, when you're talking about don't cut the carbs Mm -hmm. because they'll go into hiding, you are talking about treating with antibiotics. That's the that's mm-hmm. the treatment that you, people don't just say, well, don't cut carbs just in general. It's when you're treating with, say, rifaximin, because there is this idea that that rapidly growing bacteria will be easier to kill by, back, by um, antibiotics, right? And there's some truth to that. It depends on the mm-hmm. type of bacteria. It depends on the antibiotic. Some, some antibiotics kill resting bacteria just fine. Other ones, it, it, they do better when, when it's growing. Um, but since my recommendation is to keep antibiotics as kind of a third or fourth tier intervention, and mm-hmm. so it's not even something I deal with initially really, because I, first of all, antibiotics, especially pharmaceutical grade antibiotics, um, especially systemic ones, right? Rifaximin at least it stays in the in the intestine and neomycin too. But some of the systemic ones are going to have a lot of negative effects on the body, but all of them can impact the gut microbiome. And our microbiome has already been severely impacted over the last you know 60 or 70 years. That's an understatement. Conservative <laughs> chemicals, the Western diet. So it's already beaten down. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I really want to do is come beat it down further and there is a question about the durability of antibiotics. There aren't any real long-term studies that show with SIBO and dysbiosis that um, that the antibiotics are a long-term solution, whereas there are some studies that show that restricting fermentable carbohydrates is a durable response. There's one on lactose where they looked out five years. If people with lactose intolerance were still not consuming lactose or using a lactase, it was, they were fine. So, uh, study on fructose over a year. So the concept of limiting fermentable carbohydrates as a durable action um, is is borne out in the literature a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting initially, you know, I think it was a couple years ago, you know, maybe like four years ago, I started digging around for best ways to treat SIBO in the literature and, you know, I was comparing between antimicrobials and antibiotics and the research at the time. And I think that this is still the case. I haven't looked here in the last year, but it basically said that any antimicrobials were, were a better treatment than pharmaceuticals for oh, SIBO. Like the, the herbals. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So I thought that that was really interesting yeah. that they were more effective, more powerful, uh, you know, in, you know, long-term treating, for example, of SIBO yeah. as well, just kind of well, as another perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I recall that study. It was Johns Hopkins and, yeah. and another school in Penn, maybe. Um, what they what they said was that the herbal formulations, and they used two, two different herbal formulations, they were as good as rifaximin. And I certainly, you know, read that paper carefully, and I do keep those um, formulations handy with exactly where to source them from and how much you need to take and how many times a day, um, because there might be a time that that they are, you know, they come in handy. But saying, you know, I wish there was more research on herbal antimicrobials. Um, I, I think 
chances are the, the better, safer than, than pharmaceutical um, antimicrobials. But I wish there was um, more studies on those. Um, you know, all antibiotics have a certain potency. They have a certain spectrum, the types mm-hmm. of strains they inhibit. And we just don't know for sure when you really concentrate, even herbals. I mean, most of the antibiotics years ago used to come from fungi, bacteria, or plants. And then we get into the chemistry and we mm-hmm. started making them a lot that way. So um, a lot of those were natural e- even then. Um, I don't have a huge problem with it. When you compare it to rifaximin and say that it's it's equal to rifaximin treatment for SIBO, you have to take that with a little grain of salt, though, because with the most advanced uh, comprehensive controlled studies on rifaximin to register that drug with the FDA for IBSD, when you look at that data carefully, the results were 10% better than placebo. And so now you're saying, okay, these herbals are as good as rifaximin. Okay, does that mean they're 10% better than placebo too? <laughs> so I think we're all in, in a bit of a learning phase, phase right now. And I think more studies would help. But um, I, you know, my preference is natural, holistic. Let, you know, knock down these bacteria a little bit by just by putting them on a diet, really. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Whenever you improve your digestion, more of the carbs go into your bloodstream and fewer feed the bacteria. So fat, intermittent fasting, extended fasting, even if you've got a little bit of fat on your body and you can support that. Uh, read Jason Fung's work, just incredible. Powerful, stuff. right? Yeah. And <laughs> so all of these things are ways to put your microbes on a diet. And there was a lot of fear mongering of, oh my God, you're starving your bacteria. You're crazy. And there's most people <laughs> besides me, they're on the outside of the fence where we need to feed, feed, feed our bugs. We're starving them more fiber, more fermentable material. I don't agree. And even when people have fasted for a year or more, the microbes seem fine. So the mucus also feeds them. Mucus that our uh, gut produces is 80% polysaccharide. And it has sulfur, it has nitrogen, it's a complete fuel source. Just like when we fast, the fat on our body is a complete fuel source. People have fasted for very long periods of time, many times without even supplementing with anything. So just like eating fat from an animal, fat off your body is a complete food source. Mucus in your gut is a complete food source for microbes. So I'm definitely on the side of less is more. And I really think in the West, we're just the land of plenty. We're overfeeding ourselves. We're overfeeding our microbes. And I just think the more we can kind of ratchet things down a little bit, less is more. And also when you do that, you you reduce the bacterial burden. Your, and your secreted immunoglobulin A, um, other immune modulators. You got 20 different mucins, many types of antimicrobial activity. You've got motility. Uh, all of these things, stomach acid, all of these things are, are trying to modulate and move the bacteria and other partially digested food out of the small intestine. And we just need to let them do that a little bit better, I think, by taking our foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah. that's, that must be, you know, the elemental diet, for example, really worked for SIBO per se, you know, and, and anyway, I have very little experience with this. Anything that I do, I try first and I see if I can actually do it. I personally, the elemental diet I personally tried, it tasted horrible. The <laughs> powder tasted horrible. Yeah. 
I could do it for about three days. Then I went to water fasting for like another, you know, so many days. Please don't try this at home. And <laughs> and I couldn't do it. I couldn't stomach the taste of it. I, I could not handle it. And I could not mm. say, hey, you should be on this particular one for mm. three weeks. And again, this was really early on. But do you have any comments about the elemental diet? Mm. I mean, I agree with you. I think the the commercial ones, um, <sighs> some of them have a lot of different you know additives and so forth. Um, Physicians Elemental, it's a reputable group. I've, I've talked to some of those guys. Um, I like Mike Ruscio's approach a little bit. He's got yeah, that he semi- elemental formulation and supposedly his doesn't taste as bad. I've recommended some of my people um, get a hold of some of that and try it. Um, and also I like the fact that he um, he's not hooked on carbs with them. You know, the most elemental diets, there's almost no fat in them and they're wicked high carb. Mm-hmm. Why? There's not even a nutritional requirement for carbohydrates. So why would 80 or 90% of your calories come from glucose? Okay, it's quickly absorbed. I get that part. It might not drive a lot of SIBO, but you don't really even need it, or at least not much of it, and you can add more fats. And Ruscio has been playing around with that idea, and I, I really think um, I think he's onto something there. Yeah, he's been a guest on the podcast, so his his episode yeah. is I listened is definitely I, yeah. here. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so let's like circle back here to so we've got you know a SIBO condition. We believe that this is producing high histamine. So at this point, you know you have incorporated with these folks a diet, and do you see a pretty steady reduction in their symptoms in a short amount of time? How much? How much time does it really take mm. to mm. see an improvement here? Yeah, that's a, a good question and a big question. Um, <laughs> for basic um, bloating, belching, gas, um, diarrhea, certain altered bowel habits, um, simple heartburn, you know, that pain right behind the breastbone, mm. um, very fast. When you really knock down these bacteria, because the bacteria are producing a ton of gas. 30 grams of unabsorbed carbohydrates, just over an ounce, can drive bacteria to produce 10 liters of gas. So that's a lot of gas. And so that can drive reflux. It can cause all of you know, the cramps and bloating and distension. Um, so when you clamp down on the food supply and, and also improve your digestion by these behaviors and potentially some, some supplements, we haven't talked about those that specifically improve um, digestion, especially if you had some kind of a stool test and your elastase levels were low. So there's a, there's a role for those, but improve digestion, reduce the amount of fermentable material quantitatively and across the board, and don't skip fiber or resistant starch just because a hundred people are telling you how good it is for you. You should reduce those too. You're not, you're not eliminating everything. You're just reducing it. Bacteria go down, gas goes down. So those symptoms I talked about, um, I get very good results and very fast. Um, there are some things that will take longer and it, de- because it depends on a lot of other things. Um, constipation can be challenging. Uh, there's a lot of different causes. Not only you, you do want to know if you've got a methane issue for sure, but there's a lot of other things you might have to look at there. Um, I also work with a lot of people that have laryngopharyngeal reflux. Mm-hmm. So that's when reflux or even an aspiration, uh, gets in your lungs. You can have, uh, breathing issues from it. Uh, aerosols of it can irritate your throat, vocal cords can get in you, eustachian tubes, your sinuses. 
Um, and so people really, the voice can be affected. They have feel like they have a lump in the throat when they get an upper endoscopy. The doctor says, nope, there's nothing in your throat. They're like, you go look again because there's something in my throat. There's a lump yeah. in my throat. I know it. There's nothing there, but they feel that way. Um, those symptoms, even when you get reflux under control, um, up, do persist. And it may have something to do with you really have to control um, this reflux tightly. Um, but that tissue, the upper you know, throat and vocal cords, uh, eustachian tubes, that tissue might be more sensitive and easily irritated. And it takes a while to, um, for it to kind of heal and recover. Um, so that's, there are some instances where, where some things will take a little longer, have to work with someone a little bit longer. Um, and of course the other thing has everything to do with compliance. You can tell people everything in the world, all of these things to do. And then you look at their diet log a month later and you know, they're eating Krispy Kreme and they having pizza and all of these, <laughs> by the way, pizza is great. Just the toppings, not the crust. <laughs> So true. So I think um, you made a really good point about acid reflux. I just want to backtrack just a smidge to that. Mm -hmm. So whenever people hear acid reflux, they say, oh, well, I have acid reflux. I must need a proton pump inhibitor or something to help reduce the acid. So I, I have a feeling I'm about 99.9% .9 sure you're going to say exactly what I think you're going to say. So can you um, go ahead and, and go into that piece a little bit? Sure. And first of all, yeah, I almost don't know where to start on this. You, you, need, <laughs> your you need your stomach acid. Amen. <laughs> And read Jonathan Wright's book on that one. You need your stomach acid. It's important for digestion. It's important for preventing pathogens from getting into your gut and also bacteria from your gut refluxing up into your lungs. People on these acid-reducing drugs have a higher incidence of pneumonia, for instance. Um, we talked about LPR, laryngopharyngeal reflux. PPIs are commonly prescribed for that. They don't work. It's well-known. It's well-studied. There's meta-analysis on, on meta-analyses on it. They don't work any better than placebo. I, I don't know why. Um, maybe because um, that's the only, you know, training people have for that, but it, it doesn't mm -hmm. work. And you need to control the reflux. And you know how I know that? Um, fundoplication operations that tighten the lower esophageal sphincter muscles. I'm not recommending that. It's it's quite an invasive procedure. And you might end up with trapped gas on the other way too. It's mm. a common side effect. Not recommending them. But as a proof of principle, when you really do tighten down on these muscles and you have less reflux, there is an improvement in, in asthma and LPR type symptoms. So that's telling us that we just have to really stop the reflux. And that's what the fast track diet is really designed to do. Um, that's why I came up with it to begin with. I had um, you know, many years of just terrible reflux myself. And that's really what got me into this field, like a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. Driven by our own problems. Totally. Um, so I'm, I'm against, and even for, for other, uh, you know, other forms of, of reflux and so forth, I'm just against these PPIs. Um, there's too many health risks and side effects to even begin to discuss now, um, you know, malabsorption of vitamins and minerals and 
bone brittleness, osteoporosis-like conditions, um, kidney problems, heart problems, the list goes on and on. It's one thing if you went on a PPI for two weeks as they were intended. Right. Probably no harm would come to you. Mm -hmm. But I work with people that have been on there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's 100% yeah. true. And do you believe, you know, that, you know, we've kind of jumped around a little bit with conditions, but a lot, I just want to bring this point back home, but stomach acid issues are problems with histamine, correct? You, you believe that there is a, um, a histamine issue here. Well, yeah. With, with the reflux. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, the most common problem <laughs> is that you're blocking histamine getting to the receptors, the H2 receptors on the parietal cells. Mm -hmm. Those are the stomach, the cells in the stomach lining that produce and secrete HCL, stomach acid. And so when an H2 blocker, Alexantec, comes in and blocks these receptors, the, the histamine can't bind. And so you don't get, you don't get stomach acid. And so you, you have a form basically of um, uh, low stomach acid. So in that case, I want histamine to get in there. Now, what about the other scenario where you have way too much histamine, right? We talked about things like if DAO isn't working, um, mm -hmm. if your um, other enzymes aren't breaking down the histamine, you have too much of it. It's in your food. It's in your bacteria, bacterial overgrowth, all this histamine. What will that do? Um, well, first of all, there's these H1, H2, 3, and 4. So there's these receptors all over the body. And so too much histamine is definitely going to lead to, you know, adverse symptoms. Will binding of excess histamine to the parietal cell H2 um, receptors lead to too much stomach acid? It very well might. Um, I'm hard-pressed to cite studies on that offhand. Mm -hmm. I know this was looked at in the 80s. Um, but I think the, the methodology back there wasn't so great. Uh, <laughs> but it makes sense that if you had a lot of histamine that you might end up uh, being a hyper acid secretor. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. I would assume that's a lot less common. But maybe yeah. I'm wrong there. I mean, but yeah, I do. Would, would, you would pick it up, though, because those would be the people that would be much more susceptible to gastritis and ulcers. Sure. Um, and it Absolutely. brings to mind the, the H. pylori scenario, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I do really want to know when I work with people is have they been tested for H. pylori? Because that's one of those things. Um, it, it's insidious. It could sit there and you got not do anything for 10 years and all of a sudden you could have stomach cancer or ulcers or worse. Scary. So, um, H. pylori is a bacteria. It's kind of shaped like a little bit of a corkscrew. It bores through the mucus. It binds to the, the epithelial layer of the stomach. And there it kind of sets up shop and damages those cells over time. So wherever it makes these little focus infections, that's where it does the damage. If it's near these parietal cells, um, you know, the, these, this long-term infection, what they call it is atrophic gastritis. That means gastritis, but you're losing the functionality of those cells in that area. So if it's near the parietal cells, you may be um, achlorhydric or hypochlorhydric. You're not producing enough or any stomach acid. And you need to know that because you need to treat that infection. And by the way, there, is, um, there are antibiotics for that. Those are the kind of tried and true, and there's a lot of studies on them. There is an herbal protocol from some naturopaths that might be worth a trying, at least in this one pilot study, 
they only had a 10% lower cure rate than the, than the outright um, pharmaceuticals. But when you're talking about where H. pylori infects, right, parietal cells, low acid, it can infect other parts of your stomach too. It can affect, it can infect the areas where there's hormones being produced that control stomach acid. And in those cases, you can have that scenario like we were wondering about with too much histamine, way too much acid. And mm-hmm. that's where the connection is between H. pylori and stomach ulcers. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get ulcers from having low stomach acid, no. but you might get stomach cancer. Over, you, at least you're at greater risk for it many years down the road from low stomach acid, whereas your risk for ulcers is higher with high stomach acid. So maybe uh, excess histamine could fall in that um, realm. Yeah. I'll look at it. Absolutely. Well, this has been very, very interesting. And thanks for sharing all the knowledge that you have with working with all these folks. So um, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you think is really important? I think we touched on on most of the basic mm-hmm. issues. Um, but yeah, it was really great to talk to you too, um, and Marie and I. You know, I'd love to talk to you more. Maybe some of these issues we could delve into a little. We could more break deep. down individually because yeah. it's like kind of overarching, right? We talked about a lot of yeah, the GI track. Right, there's a lot. Right? There's a lot. <laughs> we try to cram it all into our head before these things, but it's sometimes you can pick it apart and work on little little um, areas. But congratulations on your on your podcast and your thank you. Um, YouTube channel and your, your own practice out there in Longmont. By the way, uh, I'll leave you with a little story from Longmont if you want. Yeah, Longmont and Denver, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I used to work years ago, I used to work for Amgen. No way. And they had a meeting out there, and so a bunch of people went to it. I was there. Sure. And the, the head of QA from the Puerto Rico site was there and, you know, came from the island, didn't know anything about the snow, but she was planning on going skiing. <laughs> so being from New England, I decided to give her these pointers at dinner about how to drive in the snow and cut into the skin. You mean you know, real New drive England. into the ice from New England? <laughs> well, I, I tried to give her everything I knew, right, from my <laughs> fish tailing days. And I felt so good that, you know, because she was going to head up to, you know, Vail or one of the ski sure. areas. And um, so we left dinner and they were in one uh car. I think it was like an SUV, a big Ford Explorer or something like that. And I was in one of those little like uh, uh, Foresters, you know, the the little Australian car. And it was snowing like heck that night. And she pulled up to this fork in the road where most people would just kind of look and keep going, look, see if there's anybody coming. No, she was very safe. She came to a complete stop while I was looking and I smashed right into her. Oh, no. And, and I got out, went over to a window, and she's like, um, I think you hit me. <laughs> the little, the forester with the, the hood was all crumpled up. Oh. So anyway, after giving her all these, you know, driving tips, the next morning at the meeting, the very first slide that went up oh, was wow. a picture of the front of my car that somebody had gotten <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, welcome that's to Longmont. Last time I get <laughs> <advice> in Colorado. <laughs> that's so funny. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Sure. Well, yeah, hopefully not on the road if it's snowing, but yeah, um, it's tap yeah. tap. I have a couple places <laughs> they can find me at digestivehealthinstitute.org. 
And so there's blogs and there's a Q&A and there's um, a free ebook on the Fast Track Diet if you want to learn about that. Um, there's a consultation tab. So you can reach me anytime and, and uh, if you wanted to book some sessions. Another thing I'd encourage people to do if they're interested in the diet, if they have the uh, histamine issues or functional GI issues, is join a um, Facebook group. It's Fast Tracked, T-R-A-C-T, Fast Tracked Diet, official Facebook group. About, about closing in on 11,000 members, people sharing recipes, talking nice. about all these issues. And of course, on the website, you can find Fast Track Digestion books as an IBS one and an acid reflux one. And of course, we launched uh, the Fast Tracked Diet mobile app a few years back, and we just worked over a year on a redesign of it. So that's out there. Um, so Google Play, um, Apple iTunes. So um, yeah. And hope to see you on the Facebook group. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.